Christianity probably reached the British Isles before the end of the first century with the coming of people of the Roman Empire of which Britain was a colony. Soldiers, administrators, merchants, their families and slaves, many of whom were Christians. By the second century, merchant ships from Asia Minor, Greece, Egypt, Rome frequently sailed to the British Isles to carry on commerce. Some of these merchants uh, must have been Christians as well. Toward the end of the third century, during the savage persecution of Christians by Emperor Diocletian, we know of several British martyrs, Alban, Aaron, and Julius. Daubigny said it's probably that the tidings of the Son of Man crucified and raised again during the reign of Emperor Tiberius later spread through these islands more rapidly than the dominion of the emperors, and that before the end of the second century, Christ was worshipped by not a few beyond the wall of Hadrian. It was about A.D. 200 that Tertullian wrote, parts of Britain were inaccessible to the Romans, but have yielded to Christ. In the fourth century, representatives of the church in Britain attended early church councils on the continent of Europe. And it's fairly certain that the British Christians accepted the Athanasian Creed. At the end of the fourth century, when the Picts and Scots were ravaging the countryside, we know of the conversion of Sukat, Patrick, in A.D. 385, after having been taken captive by these pagans in ancient Ireland. Through Patrick's preaching, many Celts and Britons were converted to Christ. His testimony of his conversion, that is, Patrick, I was 16 years old and knew not the true God. But in in that strange land of Ireland, the Lord opened my unbelieving eyes, and although late, I called my sins to mind and was converted with my whole heart to the Lord my God, who regarded my low estate, had pity on my youth and ignorance, and consoled me as a father consoles his children. And Merle Daubigny makes this observation of Patrick's testimony. Such words as these from the lips of the swine herd in the green pastures of Ireland set clearly before us the Christianity which in the 4th and 5th centuries converted many souls in the British Isles. In after years, Rome established the dominion of the priest and salvation by forms independently of the dispositions of the heart. But the primitive religion of these celebrated islands was that living Christianity whose substance is the grace of Jesus Christ and whose power is the grace of the Holy Ghost. The herdsman from Bonnenveren was then understanding those experiences which so many evangelical Christians in Britain have substantially undergone. The love of God increased more and more in me, he said, with faith and the fear of his name. The Spirit urged me to such a degree that I poured forth as many as a hundred prayers in one day. And even during the night in the forests and on the mountains where I kept my herd, the rain, the snow, the frost, and the sufferings which I endured excited me to seek after God. At that time I felt not the indifference which now I feel the Spirit fermented in my heart. Evangelical faith even then existed in the British island in the person of this slave and of some few Christians born again like him from on high. So if you were to read some of Patrick's writings, you would think you're reading, not perfect, but you'd think you're reading a proto-reformer. For instance, you know, I'm sure you've heard of some of Patrick's hymns. One is the hymn of the deer cry. Today I rise. Joseph, you need to write a song on this. Today I rise through God's strength to guide me. God's might shall uphold me. God's wisdom shall lead me. God's eye looks before me. God's ear shall hear for me. God's word shall speak through me. God's hand shall protect me. For Christ is now with me before and behind me. Christ is within me and beneath and above me. Christ is on my right hand and Christ is on my left. Christ is where I sit and Christ is where I sleep. Christ is where I rise each day I get up. Christ is in the heart of all who recall me. Christ is in the mouth of all who address me. Christ is in the ear of all who hear me, translated by Nigel Lee. Or uh, the original, the roots of this song that you probably sing in your church were written by Patrick. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Riches I heed not, or man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. 
High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Shortly after the conversion of Patrick, a Briton named Pelagius, who had visited Italy, began to preach against the Augustinian doctrines of the sovereignty of God, the depravity of man, and the necessity, prevenience, and irresistibility of God's grace. The British church refused to receive his doctrine, holding generally to the doctrines of Augustine. In AD 449, the Anglo-Saxons were invited by the Celts and Britons to protect them from the cruel ravages of the Picts and the Scots. But they soon, that is the Anglo-Saxons, soon turned their swords against the people they came to protect. Christianity was driven back with the Britons into the mountains of Wales and the wild moors of Cumberland and Cornwall. Anglo-Saxon paganism spread throughout the isles and yet strong Celtic Christianity was not annihilated. In the 6th century, God raised up a preacher, an Irish warrior prince by the name of Columba, to preach his word among the Picts and the Scots. He was born on December the 7th, 521, in Garton, Ireland, the great-grandson of Conal Culban, who was the son of Neal, somebody or another, king of Ireland from 379 to 405. Columbus' father was somebody else, a chieftain of the clan O'Donnell. He died on Iona, that is Columba, June the 9th, 597, age 75. Adamnan, an abbot on Iona, From 679 to 704 relates an interesting incident. I I couldn't help but read this to you. This is in Columbus biography by a man, Admin, in 679, who lived from 679 to 704. The first biography we have of him. At another time also, when the blessed man, Columba, was sojourning for some days in the province of the Picts, he was obliged to cross the river Nasa, the Ness, And when he had come to the bank, he sees some of the inhabitants burying an unfortunate fellow as those who were burying him related. A little while before, some aquatic monster seized and savagely bit while he was swimming and whose hapless body some men coming up, though too late in a boat, rescued by means of hooks which they threw out. The blessed man, however, hearing these things, orders one of his companions to swim out and bring him from over the water to a cobble that was beached on the other bank. And hearing and obeying the command of the holy and illustrious man, without delay, takes off his clothes except his tunic and casts himself into the water. But the monster, Lake Ness, which was lying in the riverbed and whose appetite was rather whetted for more prey than sated with what it already had, perceiving the surface of the water disturbed, by the swimmer suddenly comes up and moves towards the man as he swam in midstream and with a great roar rushes on him with open mouth while all who were there, barbarians as well as brethren, were greatly terror struck. The blessed man seeing it after making the salutary sign of the cross in the empty air with his holy hand upraised and invoking the name of God commanded the ferocious monster saying, Go thou no further nor touch the man, go back at once. Then on hearing this word of the saint, the monster was terrified and fled away again more publicly than if it had been dragged off by ropes, though it had approached this man as he swam so closely that between man and monster there was no more than the length of one punt pole. Then the brethren greatly marveling, seeing the monster had gone back and their comrade had returned to them in the boat, untouched and unharmed, glorified God in this blessed man. And there you have the first reference in history of the Loch Ness Monster. And if, if you read this life of Columba by Donman, it's just a story. I mean, it's just, he just goes from one event in his life to another as if there's no big deal about it. You'll have to judge whether it's true. By his death, Columba's achievements were monumental. This servant of God established several abbeys and mission outposts in Ireland and northern Britain, one of the most important of which was the Christian Center and School of Theology on the Isle of Iona in A.D. 563. Iona is three miles long, one mile wide, a rocky and windswept island off the southwest coast of the Isle of Mull, which is off the southwest coast of Scotland. Why did Columba choose this remote and bare island for his Christian center? It may have been self-exiled because of guilt, 
being a cause of a great battle in 561 between Diarmite, king of Ireland, and Columbus' relatives, the clan Neil, uh, at Kula Drummond. Allegedly, Columba mustered the clan Neil for the war for the purpose of avenging two grievances against the king. One grievance was that the king had slain Columbus' clansman, the young prince Kernan, who had taken sanctuary with him after having caused the death of a playfellow during the sports at Tara. The other was a decision which Columba considered unjust, given against him by the king in the matter of the ownership of a book. The incident is here related. In St. Columba's 39th year, while visiting at Clonard, he secretly made a copy of a beautiful book of Psalms kept by the abbot Finian in the church, of course by hand. The abbot soon discovered the fact and demanded the copy as his right. The book had cost Columba many a sleepless night, and he stoutly refused to surrender it. Unable to agree, the disputants appealed to the king of Ireland, and he said, To every cow belongeth her calf. Sorely grieved at the loss of his copy, which he was obliged to surrender to his old master, he boldly exclaimed, This is an unjust decision, O king, and I will be avenged. It has been claimed that this very manuscript, a psalter enclosed in a shrine, is that known as the Kathach, or battle, venerated for more than a thousand years by the clan O'Donnell, who carried it into their battles as a sure pledge of victory. It is now in the library of the Royal Irish Academy. But whether the story of Columbus' secret copying of the abbot's psalter be true or not, and whether the Kathach be that identical copy or not, the story is but one of many which prove the passionate love of Columba and of the early Irish ecclesiastics for fine manuscripts. Columba is said to have written out more than 300 copies of the Vulgate and of the Psalter with his own hand. In St. Adamon's uh, narrative, we often find him described as writing in his cell. D'Aubigny says, although, this, although subject to the same passions as ourselves, Columba wrestled against his weakness and would not have one moment lost for the glory of God. He prayed and read, he wrote and taught, he preached and redeemed the time. With indefatigable activity, he went from house to house and from kingdom to kingdom. Brudy, the king of the Picts, was converted, as were many of his people. Precious manuscripts were conveyed to Iona. A school of theology was founded there in which the word was studied, and many received through faith the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Iona sent missionaries throughout Europe to the Mediterranean Sea, 6th, 7th, 8th century, to the equator, through the travels of Brendan, to Iceland, and to North America, so that this little island became known as the light of the Western world. And it was from this base that the Irish saved civilization. Let me recommend to you the best book I know on Iona and Celtic Christianity uh, by a man that wouldn't share all of our views, but nevertheless, it was a New York Times bestseller for months called How the Irish Saved Civilization by a man named Cahill, just a short little paperback. D'Aubigny says, The missionary fire which Columba had kindled in a solitary island soon spread over Great Britain. Not in Iona alone, but at Bangor, County Down, and other places, the spirit of evangelization burst out. A fondness for traveling had already become a second nature for these people. Men of God burning with zeal, resolved to carry the evangelical torch to the continent, to the vast wilderness sprinkled here and there with barbarous and heathen tribes. They did not set forth as antagonists of Rome, for at that epoch there was no place for such antagonism. But Iona and Bangor, less illustrious than Rome in the history of nations, possessed a more lively faith than the city of the Caesars. And that faith, unerring sign of the presence of Jesus Christ, gave those whom it inspired a right to evangelize the world. The extent of the influence of these Celtic Christians and of their missionary activity is astonishing. The following, well, I, don't, I couldn't find this map, shows the magnitude of their efforts in founding Christian bases of missionary operation. Now, this little three-mile-long, three, three mile long, one-mile-wide island off the southwest coast of Scotland started churches in England, Ireland, Germany, Austria, <clears throat> France, Switzerland, Austria and Italy by the end of the ninth century. This led James Thompson to write that the weight of the Irish influence on the continent is incalculable. These preachers and missionaries from Iona knew nothing 
of the sacerdotalism and transubstantiation of Rome. They were pre-Protestant in many ways. These ancient ministers from Iona confessed, according to Daubinier, the Holy Scriptures are their only rule of faith. Throw aside all merit of works and look for salvation to the grace of God alone. Beware of a religion that consists of outward observances. It's better to keep your heart pure before God than to abstain from meats. One alone is your head, Jesus Christ. Bishops and presbyters are equal. They should be the husbands of one wife and have their children in subjection. So what was formed on Iona in the 6th, 7th, 8th century was the first Presbyterian church in Scotland. The early church of the British Isles did more for the conversion of northern and central Europe than the Roman church. However, these early British Christians refused to preach the gospel to their Anglo-Saxon oppressors. They made some attempts to convert them, but they considered their conquerors as enemies of God and man and shuddered when they pronounced their names while the Saxons refused to listen to their Celtic and British slaves. This failure of evangelism led to a heavy yoke of oppression and tyranny by foreign power. Tyranny always takes root in unevangelized soil because only Christ can set people free. In the middle of the 7th century at the monastery at Whitby, Yorkshire, England, much of the Celtic British church was forced into submission to the Roman Pope by ridicule, intimidation, and the use of Anglo-Saxon swords. At one point in their history, most of 1,200 unarmed British Christians were slaughtered by the Anglo-Saxon king Aethelfrith. If you've been thinking of it, I, I hope you never name any of your children Aethelfrith. And his army, after which they burned a leading center of British Christianity, probably at the instigation of Rome. Iona held out for a long time, being the last citadel of liberty in the Western world. And Popery was filled with anger at that miserable band which it, in its remote corner, refused to bend before it. Thus, by the beginning of the 8th century, the British church had become subservient to Rome. But an internal struggle was commencing which did not cease until the period of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Many faithful believers in ancient Celtic, Scottish, British, and in some measure Pictish Christianity remained in the mountains of Scotland, which long concealed the hidden fire, which after many ages burst forth with such power and might. Here and there a few independent spirits were to be found who testified against the tyranny of Rome. It was upon the work of these Chaldees, Cultoris Dei, Celtic for worshipers of God, who flourished in the 3rd and 4th centuries, and who in the 7th, 11th, and 15th centuries were still to be found, that the Wycliffe Lollards of the 13th century built much of their ministry in the 14th century and beyond. It was these Lollards that God used to pave the way for the Scottish Reformation in the 16th century. And that Reformed Church of Scotland had a major role in shaping early America. So you have the Celtics that take to refuge in the mountains for century after century in Scotland that are the first to receive the gospel by Wycliffe and his followers that are the basis of the Scottish Reformation that had a major influence on the shaping of early America. By the early 8th century... Many of the uncompromising Celtic and Scottish Christians were saddened by the backsliding of the Celtic church into the arms of Rome, surrendering the authority of Christ over the church to the authority of man. This induced them to leave their homeland for the very heart of Europe to fight in defense of the gospel and Christian liberty, which was dying out among themselves under the influence of Rome. One such man was Clement of Scotland, who believed that the work of God's grace is the essence of the gospel. And that this work must be defended against all the encroachments of man. Daubigny said to human traditionalism, he opposed the sole authority of the word of God to clerical materialism, a church which is the assembly of saints, and to Pelagianism, the sovereignty of grace. He was a man of decided character and firm faith, but without fanaticism. His heart was open to the holiest emotions of our nature, and he was a husband and a father. By the way, the, these people were not monks. These people were not Roman Catholics. These were presbyters who were married with children. Uh, he quitted Scotland and traveled among the Franks, everywhere scattering the seeds of the faith. He was called of God to defend the true faith against an equally talented man named Winifred or Boniface of Wessex, who was working to establish Romanism in the same area. 
Boniface was a champion of Rome, supported by the Pope, Gregory II, and by Charles Martel, ruler of the Franks. The Englishman and the Scotsman, representatives of the two great systems, were about to engage in deadly combat in the heart of Europe, in a combat whose consequences might be incalculable. The debate between them is instructive. Boniface, the Roman Catholic, began by confronting Clement with the laws of the Roman Catholic Church. Clement, the Scot, the Celtic Christian, denied the authority of of these church canons and refuted them. Then Boniface set forth the decisions of various church councils, but Clement replied that if the decrees of the ecumenical councils were contrary to the Bible, therefore they had no authority over Christians. Boniface was astonished at Clement's audacity. He then quotes the fathers of the Latin church, but Clement told him that instead of submitting to the opinions of men, he should obey the Bible alone because it is the complete word of God. By this time, Boniface was enraged. Therefore, he introduced the united authority of the priests, bishop, archbishops, and pope as the one true church. Clement, to Boniface's surprise, maintained that the one true church is where the Holy Spirit lives and is active. This body alone is the bride of Christ. Boniface was horrified, but Clement would not be swayed. Clement's main point was that the Roman church had replaced the authority of God with the authority of man, and that was the source of all the errors of Rome. Daubigné. Thus then did a Scotsman, the representative of the ancient faith of his country, withstand almost unaided in the center of Europe the invasion of the Romans. But he was not long alone, the nobility especially more enlightened than the common people thronged around him. If Clement had succeeded, a Christian church would have been founded on the continent independent of the papacy. Frustrated, Boniface turned to Charles Martel and his sons, Pepin and Carloman, to obtain permission to call a church council to summon Clement for heresy. This council met at Soissons on March the 2nd, 744. Boniface made his charges of treason against the church, one of which was against Clement's marriage. Clement was excommunicated by Boniface. He threw Clement into prison with the approval of the Pope and the King of France. Later, because of the people's support of Clement, Carloman let him out of prison. He continued to protest courageously against the authority of man in issues of faith. For him, the only rule of faith and practice was the written word of God. Boniface beseeched the Pope to condemn Clement as a heretic. The Pope, having been bought by Boniface with a silver cup and a garment of expensive and soft texture, decided that if Clement did not retract his errors, he would deliver him over to eternal condemnation. He instructed Boniface to send Clement to Rome under armed guard. We here lose all traces of the Scotsman, but it's easy to conjecture what must have been his fate. The influence and purity of Celtic Christianity waned for the following reasons. The ravages of Viking raids. The surrender to Roman Catholicism. The lack of zeal in the Celtic Christians in evangelizing the Anglo-Saxons. One last issue should be explained. Why did Thomas Cahill entitle his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization? The word Irish is seldom coupled with the word civilization. When we think of peoples as civilized or civilizing, the Egyptians and the Greeks, the Italians and the French, the Chinese and the Jews may all come to mind. And yet Ireland, a little island at the edge of Europe that has known neither renaissance nor enlightenment, in some ways a third world country with a Stone Age culture, had one moment of unblemished glory. For as the Roman Empire fell... As all through Europe, uh, unwashed barbarians descended on the Roman cities, looting artifacts and burning books. The Irish, who were just learning to read and write, took up the great labor of copying all of Western literature. Everything they could lay their hands on. These scribes then served as conduits through which the Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian cultures were transmitted to the tribes of Europe newly settled amid the rubble and ruined vineyards of the civilization they had overwhelmed. Without this service of the scribes, everything that happened subsequently would have been unthinkable. Without the mission of the Irish monks, but they weren't monks, who single-handedly refounded European civilization throughout the continent in the bays and valleys of their exile, the world that came after them would have been an entirely different one, a world without books.
And our own world would never have come to be. Not for a thousand years, not since the Spartan Legion had perished at the hot gates of Thermopylae, had Western civilization been put to such a test or face such odds. Nor would it again face extinction until this century it devised the means of extinguishing all of life. As our story opens at the beginning of the 5th century, no one could foresee the coming collapse. But to reasonable men in the second half of the century, surveying the situation of their time, the end was no longer in doubt. Their world was finished. One could do nothing but, like Asonius, retire to one's villa, write poetry, and await the inevitable. It never occurred to them that building blocks of their world would be saved by outlandish oddities from a land so marginal that the Romans had not bothered to conquer it, by men so strange they lived in little huts or on rocky outcrops and shaved half their heads and tortured themselves with fast and chills and nettle baths. As Kenneth Clark said, looking back from the great civilizations of the 12th century uh, uh, France or 17th century Rome, it's hard to believe that for quite a long time, almost 100 years or more, Western Christianity survived by clinging to places like Skellig Michael, a pinnacle of rock 18 miles from the Irish coast, rising 700 feet out of the sea. Now, let me tell you very quickly why I got enamored with Iona. I was born and raised in southern West Virginia in Boone County. The county seat is Madison. And I saw in National Geographic uh, some pictures of some ancient Indian scratchings on some cliffs near where my grandmother was raised, uh, lived. She was in the early 90s. So I asked her, I said, Granny, do you know anything about Indian scratchings? Now, why I was interested is these Indian scratchings were 1,200 years old. I mean, they went back to the 7th, 8th, and 900s. And she said, well, I've forgotten exactly where they are, but all I know to tell you is go over to Turtle Creek and find some old man and ask him. So I go to Turtle Creek and I ask some old man about Indian scratchings, and he points me to this gap in the mountain, and this is all the directions I had. He said, you see that gap in the mountain? He said, go down that trail a little piece. And then go over to your right down to the Little Cold River, which is a nothing of a river that meanders through the mountains. And walk up the left side of that Little Cold River a little piece, and there it is. Well, I did exactly what I was told. I walked down that gap a little piece, went by the Little Cold River, walked up the Little Cold River a little piece. And there, protected by the mountains and a ledge, were these Indian scratchings. And I have pictures of them here that you can come and and, uh, look at that... uh, just as clear as they were when they were first written in the 700s, 800s, 900s, uh, as if time had not passed. Now, the reason I wanted to see them is I knew they weren't Indian scratchings because I'd seen their translation in an archaeolo- scholarly archaeological magazine. This was ancient Irish, southern West Virginia, seven, eight, nine hundred Irish missionaries. And what this was written on this uh, cliff was a hymn of praise to the incarnation of Christ. And they found the same hymn in northern West Virginia in Irish, ancient Irish, and written by it in Hebrew was the Ten Commandments. And they have found these from Maine to Arizona. So in the seven, eight, nine hundreds, there were Irish missionaries here, who knows what for, I guess, evangelizing the Indians. They evangelized everybody else. And there's only one place in all the world they could come from. And that is Iona, or one of its outposts. So I have the pictures here. So the last 30 minutes, just like my 30 minutes, the last 30 minutes will be Bill Potter talking to you about the other group that did not submit to Rome in the Middle Ages. <clears throat> I did not manuscript my talk for today except for the introduction. And I also have a map of where the Waldensians lived, at least <clears throat> in part. And they're on the front pew. So when I'm done, if you have an interest in uh, clipping into your notebook, at least the introduction uh, to my lesson as well as a map on where the Waldensians lived. There it is. Uh, help yourself to it. <clears throat> there are very few books on the Waldenses. They uh, appear in just a few sentences in general histories of the pre-Reformation period. 
uh, typically in the context of uh, crusades that were conducted by the Roman Catholic Church uh, against heretics in Europe. And the Waldensians are going to end up being one of the major heretical groups that the uh, Roman Church seeks to annihilate and to stamp out. But there are several books on the Waldenses, and uh, the best one that I would recommend is entitled The Waldensian Descent, Persecution and Survival, 1170 to 1570, by Gabriel Aldizio. It's published by Cambridge University Press, but it's the best scholarly treatment that I've ever seen on the Waldensians. <clears throat> Merle Daubigny, the great historian of, the Refor- of Reformation history, in looking for pre-Reformation orthodoxy in the church, had this to say about the centuries prior to the 1500s. He said, The Church of Christ was a dilapidated building, but in digging around it, a portion of the living rock on which it had originally been built was discovered among its foundations. A part of that small portion of living rock uh, was found a small but vigorous group of Christian people from the south of France, known as the Waldensians. They were simple Christian people, hounded by the Dominican wolves of the Pope's inquisitors, tried without counsel by judges who had already predetermined their fate, and if they did not deny their faith, lost all their property and were often burned at the stake. The Waldensians were pursued as heretics for more than 400 years. Crusades were hurled against their mountain strongholds and thrown back by the fathers and sons determined to defend their faith and their families. When overcome, they were massacred without pity, and the Vatican rejoiced. What horrible heretical doctrines did these Christians cling to that brought the most vicious retribution of the Catholic Church against them? How did they survive for 400 years before the Reformation? I propose to give you a brief account of the people known as the poor of Lyon, or as Waldensians, and show you that many of their beliefs were in accord with true biblical doctrine, and that their faithfulness unto death over four centuries could not obliterate their communities nor stop the spread of the gospel wherever they went. Their story begins with a man uh, known as Valdez, a rich merchant of the French city of Lyon around the year 1170. Later in history, he is called Peter Waldo. His followers left few written records, uh, so much of what we know about them actually uh, comes from the uh, records of the Inquisition of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, The inquisitors who arrested and tried the people known as Waldensians kept very careful records, uh, and from them we get a picture of who these people were and what happened to them. They did leave a few records, but most of what we know comes from the inquisitors. Valdez read the scriptures and came to conclusions of his own about various doctrines that were at odds with stated church orthodoxy. First and foremost, he decided that the apostles were poor and that Christians should be like the apostles. Uh, Christians today who are socialists believe that too. Uh, Thus he began what appeared to be another reformist group of laymen within the boundaries of the church. He sold all his possessions, as did his followers, and took to the roads as mendicant preachers of holy living characterized by poverty and obedience to the scriptures. Known to themselves and by their opponents as the poor of Lyon, They preached on street corners in different cities and towns of southern France. Initially tolerated as just another group seeking the reform of a church, often tolerant of depraved behavior by its clergy, um, political intrigue by its highest authorities, and grasping for vast amounts of wealth at the expense of the people whose spiritual welfare they claimed to have foremost in mind. The Waldensians eventually uh, got the name Waldensian because as time went on, the leader, uh, the founder of this movement, this uh, man named Valdez, became known as Peter Waldo. 
somewhere along the line, someone said that his first name was Peter, and Valdez, uh, being a Provençal name in southern France, got changed to Valdo, and thus Valdensians. They were known primarily as the poor of Lyon because they were characterized by poverty, as were some of the monks of the Roman church. And initially their preaching was approved of by the church, especially locally in France. But as time went on, the doctrines that they preached uh, ran up against Roman orthodoxy. The foremost, the foremost uh, doctrinal belief of the Waldensians uh, was that the scriptures are to be preached in the vernacular and that the scriptures are the final authority for life and faith and practice for the Christian. Well, that ran quite opposite of uh, Catholic belief. The Waldensians said its scriptures are the basis of all belief. And as they studied the scriptures and as, they, as these lay preachers went about reading the word of God in, in Franco-Provençal language initially, uh, as they learned the scriptures and memorized them in, in large portions, you know, scriptures weren't readily available in any language and especially to laymen. All the scriptures, the only approved scriptures, were in Latin and could only be read and uh, proclaimed by the priests of the Roman church. So these laymen had copies of the scriptures in their own language, and from that they read the scriptures to people and preached from them. And something they were unable to find, just as an example, is they couldn't locate a single pope in the Bible. And they also... Um, failed to find purgatory. It wasn't even in the emanations from the penumbra of Scripture. Uh, they uh, refused then to believe those doctrines and told people that they were not found in the Word of God. Now, not all of the doctrines <coughs> held by the Waldensians well, we would necessarily approve of today. And not all Waldensians held the same views on every doctrine. There is, uh, seems to be a diversity of belief. But there are certain basic things that they held in common. And the importance and the sufficiency of the scripture was at bedrock where they began. They also had a call to poverty. They truly believed that because the apostles uh, had little wealth and were poor, that they themselves should reflect apostolic lifestyle. And so wherever they traveled, they were mendicants, that is, they begged or they accepted alms from people because they uh, pursued poverty. That was not unusual among some groups of preachers in Europe. But then again, preaching. They were laymen uh, preaching in a culture in which only the trained and ordained uh, priests of the Roman church were allowed to preach. That is, to uh, actually expound doctrine. And the priests... Uh, what doctrine they expounded was handed to them in books and in learning outside of what the Bible actually taught. And in fact, many priests were illiterate, and they would, uh, they would be taught to memorize the liturgies for worship and for doing uh, the Eucharist, etc. These men learned to read. Now, probably in cities, maybe 20% of the people were literate. In the countryside, less than 10% of the people were, were literate. So the Waldensians had to learn how to read, and they had to get their hands on Bibles. And because there were so few, they did memorize quite a bit of Scripture. They are going to hold forth from roughly 1170 until 1570 or thereabouts. And in these early days, Valdez uh, is the leader of this group. He is the sort of the founder, the man who had this vision of how um, God wanted God's people to live and how he wanted his truth to be communicated. He was told to stop preaching. Uh, the, as the church realized that here was an unordained layman, a former merchant, in fact, who was reading the word of God publicly on street corners, and he had a following, they told him that he had to, he had to cease Finally, he was uh, thrown out of Lyon, and so he went to other parts of southern France, Languedoc, 
northern Italy. Eventually, his followers were going to go to the borders of Germany. In 1184, uh, the Pope got involved and issued a condemnation uh, for what he called ministry of preaching without a mission. That is, he had not been commissioned by the church, therefore he was not allowed to read the word of God, and he was not allowed to expound on it in any way. But he was declared a schismatic, not a heretic, and excommunicated. They had, uh, a schismatic was different from a heretic, was different from an infidel, etc. Um, but by 1215, that is going to change. In 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council um, is going to be founded. And uh, the Fourth Lateran Council is going to declare that people of uh, Waldensian belief were actually preaching heresy. And this is an interesting point because, uh, as we learned yesterday, heresy is false doctrine that strikes at the very heart and foundation of biblical Christianity. And that's a good Bible definition of heresy. But by the 12th century, by the early 13th century, we see a a little um, sleight-of-hand trick here by the Roman Church. And let me read to you uh, a definition of heresy from the Catholic Encyclopedia. And it is this. Um, In the matter of heresy... Uh, the deposit of the faith, that is the sum total of truths revealed in Scripture and tradition as proposed to our belief by the church. The believer accepts the whole deposit as proposed by the church. The heretic accepts only parts of it as, com- as, parts of it as commend themselves to his own approval. So we have a, s- a sleight of hand where heresy used to be a major doctrine that affected the, the very nature of the church and of orthodoxy now is any disagreement with any doctrine that the tradition of the church says uh, is heresy. And so any deviation can get a person tried uh, for heresy. And any heresy, if not abjured by the accused, can bring about loss of property, uh, exile, or being burned at the stake. And when it came to Waldensians, it was usually burned at the stake unless they abjured their faith. And most of them apparently did not. So by the 13th century, even the definition of what heresy is, disagreement with any dogma that church tradition has proclaimed, is heretical. And in, 11, in 1215 at the Fourth uh, Lateran Council, Waldensian beliefs uh, were declared heresy. So now the Waldensians began new life outside the Roman Catholic Church. They had to become more organized, they were going to be persecuted, and they were dispersed. The Waldensians are never going to have a central authority. They're always going to be dispersed. And one of the struggles that the Waldensians have down through the centuries is that their, their main objective is to preach the word of God as it's found in the scriptures. But if they do that publicly, they're going to be burned at the stake. And the gospel is not going to go forth, and their families are going to be destroyed. So they had this tension for 400 years that they want to preach the gospel. It's their mandate is to communicate the gospel. Yet, if they do it publicly, they all die. And so the Waldensians go underground And the only way you would ever meet a Waldensian, if you were a a Frenchman or a German or a Swiss, the only way, or an Italian, the only way you would meet a Waldensian is if somebody who knows you knows a Waldensian and introduces you. You're not going to accidentally hear them on a street corner after about the middle of the 13th century because they meet in secret. And they organize churches and they choose elders and deacons, presbyters, as they call them. And, in fact, they even uh, create a, a, a sort of an overseer. They don't call him a bishop. They have some other Provençal name for them that ordains the preachers to go out and preach outside the Roman Catholic Church. And initially in Franco-Provençal language. The 13th century, that is the 1200s, uh, there is a consensus on only a few doctrines 
among Waldensians who are now beginning to spread all through the um, area of France called Provence. Provence had been a ground zero of heresy for a long time. The Cathars had been there, the Albigenses, and crusades had been mounted against them. In fact, the Waldensians had preached against the Albigenses because they had some very heterodox beliefs. And while they preached against the the Cathars, um, they were favored by the church, but the Cathars were exterminated uh, and scattered. And so then then the church turned its attention on the Waldensians themselves. Some of the things that they agreed on in the early part of the 13th century was that no one could be saved who was not baptized. Now, that's not a, a we would consider an orthodox uh, position. But uh, they also believed that marriage could be, be dissolved for infidelity. Remember, they're reading the scriptures, and this is what they believe the scriptures are saying. And, of course, that, that is outside Catholic belief uh, for sure. Uh, also, they believed that church um, discipline was important. And the only, thing, the only doctrine they had unanimous agreement on was that the Holy Scriptures are the ultimate source of reference, the supreme rule of faith and morality, and that the Scripture trumps and overrides anything that the Catholic Church says that doesn't conform to Holy Scripture. And that, that brought about the, uh, their victimization by the new, um, the new group that was organized by the Church the Holy Office, as it was called, the Inquisition. The Inquisition, the Inquisitio Hereticae Provitatis, literally the inquiry on heretical perversity, was the fight against heretics and begun in the Middle Ages and begun to seek to quell um, initially the Cathars, but now turned uh, four square on the Waldensians. And so they became the targets of the Holy Office, the Inquisition. It was created in 1231 to root out heresy. Burning at the stake was uh, a very common means of execution. And they were only, the Inquisition was answerable only to the Pope. Three permanent seats were established in southern France to combat the Waldensian movement in Toulouse, in uh, Carassonne, and in Provence. The Inquisition was put in the hands of the Black Friars, the Dominicans. They were trained in theology uh, and controversy. They loved controversy and in preaching. And the religious dissent was deeply rooted in that realm in southern France. And so the, so the Dominicans were sent there to root out, root and branch, the uh, Waldensian heresies. The Inquisition... Uh, as it turns out, is, is an archival treasure for us. In the 13th and 14th centuries, we would know uh, very little about the Waldensians without them. Although, uh, I just as soon have them be successful and me not know about them, but uh, as it turns out, they're going to be uh, persecuted heavily. In 1241, for instance, out of 200 heretics who are quoted in the Inquisition Records, 81 of them are classified as Waldensians. Uh, Jacques Fournier, the Bishop of Palmier, uh, future Pope Benedict XII, uh, examined 50 Waldensians, and the Roman Church still called them the poor of Lyon, as well as Waldensians. And as persecutions stepped up, the Waldensians began to migrate, sometimes in waves, and they went up into the mountains of the Piedmont region and into the Alps and over into Italy. Uh, In fact, they became quite numerous in Italy. And they went north uh, through Switzerland and into Austria, where they became uh, a large number of Waldensians in Austria and in Germany. So over over the 14th and 15th century, we see the Waldensians uh, moving secretly in all kinds of different directions, but maintaining that that central presence in Provence in France. And you'll see that in in the map. Entire towns became Waldensian uh, in in Provence. The 14th century might be the most turbulent century in all of history, in European history. 
uh, a number of uh, enormous tragedies, uh, if you want to look at them that way, occurred in that century. One was the Black Death came to Europe. And it's estimated that one-third to one-half of the population of Europe died from the Black Plague. At the same time, a, a war is fought that lasts 100 years. It's a series of wars, actually, between England and France. And there's great devastation and loss of life. And thirdly, the Roman Catholic Church splits into two parts within Western Christendom. A pope is installed at Avignon in France. And there's another pope still in Rome. And the French pope uh, believes he is the head of, the, of Christ's church. And the pope in Rome believes he's... And they both form armies and they fight against each other. And the different countries align themselves and groups align themselves with one pope or the other pope. And while that's all taking place, of course, the depravity of the, of the clergy uh, continues unabated because of just the total disruption... And through all of this, and underneath all of this, the Waldensians are going and preaching to people the pure word of God. And the people who hear it realize how corrupt the church is and how it's getting worse and worse. And you've got counter popes uh, and wars going on, the Black Death. Uh, <clears throat> and that's a great time for the gospel to go out. And so the Waldensians continue to increase uh, more and more in number, and the Inquisition gets busier and busier trying to find the Waldenses, and, and that's in the 14th century in the 1300s. Now, when these people are caught, as I said before, they're very simple people, but they're preachers, they're leaders, know the scriptures, and they're very difficult for the Inquisition. The Inquisition brings in their scholars, and they come to to test these people, to, to see their level of understanding. Now, the doctrine of the Incarnation and the doctrine of the Eucharist and those complicated biblical doctrines uh, are not something that the Waldensians know much about or think much about. Uh, they, preach, they preach the gospel. They live a, uh, a very simple life. One of the characteristics of Waldensians is one of their um, uh, heartfelt beliefs is that lying under any circumstances is sinful. And so when they catch Waldensians and they can find out that that's who they are, they know that anything a Waldensian tells them is going to be true, much to the hurt of the Waldensians themselves. But the, uh, the socially and culturally, the people who are now Waldensians, um, they're as far from the scholars of the Dominicans of the Inquisition as Mars is from Earth, culturally and socially. And the manipulation of people accused of heresy is so easy for them to do. And it's easy to prove uh, someone is a Waldensian. Waldensians don't believe in taking oaths. The Catholic Church says that taking an oath, putting your hand on the Bible and swearing before God, uh, is part of church dogma. And if you won't do it, you're a heretic. And that's one way they identified Waldensians. When they said, put your hand on the Bible to swear an oath, they would refuse to do it. And they knew they had a Waldensian on their hands because these people held to their doctrines so tenaciously. Whether their doctrines were exactly right or not, they certainly uh, held to them forcefully. Good men who knew their scriptures were a real challenge for the Inquisition. But because of the, <coughs> the strength of their beliefs, the poor of God, or the brothers as they call themselves, um, would get caught and would end up uh, being burned at the stake. In the 1300s, in the 14th century, the Inquisition was able to boil down the basic Waldensian beliefs. They had a list of characteristics that would get a Waldensian burnt at the stake. Preaching uh, was one way. Of course, their poverty was still pervasive, and there was nothing against that. But the Bible being the final authority, that was the catch-all. Every Waldensian believed the Bible was the final authority for life and faith and practice, plain and simple. And they were utterly opposed to falsehood. They never lied, and they refused to swear an oath. And 
they denied purgatory. Now, purgatory, denying purgatory, did not become heresy until 1255. A lot of Christians in Europe, a lot of Roman Catholics in Europe, uh, wherever the church went, many people didn't believe in purgatory. Millions of people. And all of a sudden, the church discovered that they had to believe in it because that was new church dogma. And so to deny purgatory was heretical and could get you burned at the stake. And the Waldensians did deny it. They could not be persuaded that it was in the Bible. Uh, there's, never, there's not a single known exception of a Waldensian accepting purgatory uh, in a trial before the Inquisition. Well, as the 14th and 15th centuries progressed, um, the Waldenses had to overcome the problems that you might, you might figure. One is that when they went to Austria, suddenly they weren't, the Austrians don't speak Franco-Provençal. So when Waldensians migrated, they had to learn a whole new language, and they had to translate the Bible into that language and copy it and then preach it. And that's what they did. They're like Wycliffe Bible translators. Uh, because they only believed in vernacular, they rejected Latin as a spoken language uh, that the people could understand. And so they, wherever they went. In 1484, the Roman Catholic Church began formal witch hunting. And another redefinition of terms, uh, the church started using the term for witches, they started using the term vaudois, which means Waldensi. And so Waldensis equals witchcraft. And this clear redefinition of words in order to catch more Waldensis, because now it brought the secular authorities into the picture in a much bigger way than they'd been involved before. It was a crime against the state to be, to be a witch. Uh, or to consort with the devil. So now the Waldensians are no longer even considered wayward Christians. Now they are absolute uh, heretics involved in witchcraft. In the 13th century, Jan Hus, in the 14th century, Jan Hus, uh, a Czech reformer, pre-Reformation reformer, uh, defies the church and has the same view of Scripture and a number of Waldensians become Hussites and get exterminated as Hussites. Uh, but they were actually of uh, Waldensian conviction. They often memorized Matthew and John in several apostolic books. The preachers were known for uh, memorizing those particular books. <clears throat> and after they preached, after they read the scriptures, then they would preach, they'd have a sermon. And then their services were followed by confession to one another. And that was another touchstone of the Inquisition. They would ask a, uh, an accused person, have you ever confessed your sins to someone other than a priest? Well, Denzig would say, sure, I confess my sins to my brothers. Well, off to the stake with you, uh, because you're only allowed to confess your sins to a priest. And it is interesting that, you know, that Waldensian preachers, when, they, when, when their um, people confess to them, they would say, God forgives you. Whereas the Roman Catholic priests, priest always said, Ego te absolvo, I absolve you of your sins. And the Waldensi pastor would say, God forgives you of your sins. So there's a, a difference. Uh, in the 1480s, eight crusades were launched into the Alpine regions, the mountain regions, to destroy the Alba, uh, to destroy the Waldensian towns and uh, congregations that existed uh, high up in the mountain crags, uh, beautiful valleys, uh, beautiful valleys of the Piedmont region. And the, if you want to ever want to read about, there's a historic novel entitled Rora, and if you ever get your hands on it, it's a, it's a wonderful picture of the defense of their mountain homes by the Waldensians. It's a historical novel that is uh, greatly accurate. Well, I need to fast forward to the Reformation. As the Waldensians began hearing about Martin Luther, um, the Catholic Church even started calling the Waldensians, uh, expanding their, their net even further. They began calling them Lutherans. And when they heard about Reformation taking place, 
and that the hallmarks of the Reformation were sola scriptura, scriptures alone. They loved that. They said these people that are being called reformers, they're like us. Sola, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia. They needed, they needed more teaching on some of that because they still believed in certain works that, that they thought needed to accompany salvation. And as they began exploring the Reformation, they found that the doctrines being preached especially in Calvin's Geneva, were in the Bible. William Farrell took a personal interest in the Waldensians, and he met with their representatives and some of their preachers, and he sat down with them, and he said, here's what the Bible teaches. And for the first time, Waldensians heard biblical doctrine preached only from the Scripture. Uh, And they eventually are going to be folded into the Calvinistic Reformation almost entirely. But the Waldensian communities remain throughout the Reformation, still in the mountains. They're still persecuted. Um, And let me read to you, just in closing, um, a a couple items. This from, uh, this from one of the reformers who said to them, It is our hope and our confident belief that the Holy Spirit will speak to us through you. This is what they said to uh, Oclampadius. Uh, yeah, Oclampadius. And enlighten us over numerous things, which because of our ignorance and our laziness we doubt, and also we do not know it at all, which is, I strongly fear, much to the detriment of us and our people, whom we t- teach in a manner that is hardly competent. Uh, and as they found out about swearing oaths, and some of them opposed the death penalty, and, and there were different things, different things that the different ones believed. They still had seven sacraments um, that they had maintained down through the centuries. But they rejected the cult of the Virgin and other saints. They rejected purgatory, uh, suffrages for the dead, vigils, holy water, mass, abstinence um, on meats. And indulgences, they, they really were Bible alone people, although they didn't have it perfectly together. Um, but as the Reformation came and as they learned more and more about the Bible from men who were educated men who believed the same way they did about Scripture, they came to see that some of the things that they held uh, were not as they ought to be. Well, during the Reformation, here's an example of one um, one uh, capture of a uh, Waldensian town in uh, Italy that are massacred. And this is the record that's sent by the uh, commanding officer of the soldiers that, um, that attacked this town. This was uh, 14 of June, 1561. It says, I send you the list of Lutherans of the two lands in Calabria, prisoners and dead. Uh, and these were not Lutherans, they were Waldensians. Men aged 17 years and over, 260. Men aged 10 to 17, 50. Women aged 14 years and over, 510. Pregnant women, 29. Young children with their mothers, 181. Young, young children aged 4 to 10, 284. This was a, a Waldensian congregation that was caught and massacred by Italian troops sent by the papacy to wipe out the heretics. Um, We will find that uh, as the Reformation progressed and even up into the next century, that the Waldensians then become, most of them become Huguenots in France, and they become part of the general Huguenot movement. And uh, Milton composed his famous sonnet on the late massacre in Piedmont. And with this I'll I'll end... um, John Milton wrote this about the Waldensians of the Piedmont. And uh, Oliver Cromwell, when he finds out and when England finds out what's, that the Catholic Church is still seeking to massacre and, and annihilate all the Waldensians now that they've become reformed, and especially become, they became reformed, um, he himself, when he became Lord Protector of England, Cromwell informed the King of France and he informed the Pope that if you, consider, if you continue to pursue the Waldensians of the Piedmont, I'm going to bring the new model army into France, and we'll see how you like it. Uh, and they stopped. The church stopped 
as long as uh, Oliver Cromwell was on the uh, leading of England, the massacres of the Waldensians stopped because they didn't want the New Model Army running amok uh, through the Catholic armies of Europe. But this is Milton's, Milton's famous sonnet. Avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints, whose bones lie scattered on the Alpine mountains cold, even them who kept thy truth so pure of old, when all our fathers worshipped stocks and stones. Forget not, in thy book record their groans, who were thy sheep, and to their ancient fold, slain by the bloody Piedmontese that rolled, mother with infant down the rocks, their moans, the valleys redoubled to the hills, and they to heaven, their martyrs' blood and ashes sow, o'er all the Italian fields where still doth sway the triple tyrant that from these may grow a hundredfold who have learnt the way early may fly the Babylonian woe. And uh, writing like that inflamed the Reformed Christians of England uh, to threaten their own, their own military invasion of France. But the Waldensians were people uh, of the book. And for 400 years... Uh, suffered and bled and died and were faithful uh, in their maintaining uh, the purity of the gospel outside the Church of Rome. Not perfect in all their doctrines, but men who loved Christ and who loved God and were willing to die for it. And they expanded as far as Poland and Southern Europe. uh, They went far and wide with the gospel at a time when there were very few people, other people, uh, doing that.